You are listening to RudolfSteinerAudio.com. If you are listening to the podcast of this, it is located at RudolfSteiner.Podbean.com. Please consider becoming a patron. As well, there are two publishing houses, SteinerBooks.org in America and RudolfSteinerPress.com in England, who are the sole publishers of Steiner into English and have given me permission to do these recordings. Please consider patronizing them as well. This is a reading of a collection of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled, What is Necessary in These Urgent Times? This is Lecture 7, entitled, Thinking, Feeling, and Willing in Social Life, given in Dornach on January 30th, 1920. In our last three meetings here, I took some time to describe this building, both the process of its construction and the goal connected with it. Today I will add to these building reports something I would like to call a report on the times in the most wide-reaching sense. I must stress that this building is intended as both a representation of our anthroposophically oriented spiritual science and a representative phenomenon of the times. In its form, its design, and its composition, It is meant as an expression of everything that is attempting to enter and must be allowed to enter this evolutionary moment, which will carry us from the present into the near future. When I speak about the great task of this time, and particularly when I indicate how important it is that the majority of people become receptive to all things spiritual, we must recognize that this task arises directly from everything that initiation science and initiation wisdom have drawn from the spiritual world. You need not approach the demands of the spiritual world alone to understand the necessity of a spiritual intervention in these times. In one of my last lectures here, I spoke to the fact that even in its outer forms, The world is visibly undergoing a vast reorganization. Nearly everyone in the world today can see that recent events have given the English-speaking people dominance over the physical earth. We will not be discussing this shift in power today, but we will speak and have already spoken about the fact that this shift is accompanied by a certain feeling of responsibility, a feeling that tells us clearly there In the moment, it becomes possible to exercise power over the world. In that moment, we must feel impelled to fill our every action with the spiritual impulse at present in human evolution. Not to do this, or not to desire to do this, is to bring about the downfall of human evolution. It is not a pointless exercise in these times, to consider reports about past events. And of all the various reports that could be laid out here today, I would like to present this one to you. A particular confluence of events occurred in 1870. A clear-thinking man living in a German city gave a talk at almost the same moment that the conflict broke out with Sudan. The people in that city had not yet heard of the conflict, This man, whom I referred to as clear-thinking, gave a talk 
in which he foresaw certain victories that Germany would achieve in that conflict. In this talk, the foretelling of this victory was accompanied by a demand that the victors undergo a spiritual deepening in the wake of their success. And soon, after the foreseen victory had been achieved, this same man wrote an article about the necessary evolution of the age itself. In this same article, which was written almost fifty years ago, there were many noteworthy things, things that lead to two separate considerations. First of all, the article speaks to the necessity that people avoid two different imbalanced ways of looking at the world. One imbalanced worldview consists of turning toward only the abstract spiritual, and the other consists of turning toward the consideration and adoration of only the material. And then this man demanded of his contemporaries and their successors something he referred to as, in quotes, ideal realism. You can see that such a demand came at a time when people longed for a renewal of spiritual life. But if you follow everything that resulted from this longing for a renewal of spiritual life, you will discover just how incapable people were of finding a way to establish a connection between spiritual and material strivings, a way to bring into reality the concept of ideal realism. So this important demand, spoken out of a dimly felt longing, came out of a profound inability out of the impossibility of finding any true content in the world. It was an uncertain feeling and nothing more. But its expression was also connected to something else. The man I am speaking of, together with several others who also felt some sort of longing for a renewal of the spiritual life, tried to draw attention to the fact that if this renewal of spiritual life did not occur, the nations of Europe would go to war and all of the culture human beings had created would be destroyed. Back then there was also a man who gave many lectures in Switzerland named Johannes Scher, and please remember this all was spoken about fifty years ago, who spoke of how dangerous it was that most people were coming to self-awareness at a time when the leaders of the educational system had turned away from spiritual worldviews in favor of materialistic concepts and ideas. Even at that time, these matters were spoken of in piercing and weighty words. What happened then? Then came a time in which a wave of materialism fell over all of Europe, a time in which people considered it acceptable to ignore the great danger that lay in not thinking about or desiring spiritual intervention. Every now and then someone would come along and point out that despite the conscious attitudes of people in everyday life, a longing for spiritual life existed in the hidden places of the human soul more so than in any other age of earthly evolution. But these voices were heard only on a very superficial level, such people were not listened to seriously, and basically we are still living in this time, 
the terrible occurrences of the last five years have penetrated deep into the souls of the European people, so much so that their thoughts and feelings are connected only to outer results, and they are not willing to accept what we all must accept if we are to speak meaningfully about the future evolution of humanity on the earth. What lies before us now in Europe has been preparing itself over the course of decades, but human souls have not been preparing themselves. The majority of human souls are as unprepared as they could possibly be for a wave of intervention from the spiritual world, a wave that is pounding on the doors of life, a wave that wants to enter but that people do not want to allow into their hearts and souls. It is essential that we turn toward a spiritual consideration of the world, and it is especially important that we come to a true knowledge of the human being. The true nature of a human being cannot be recognized unless we first recognize the spiritual world. For the, spir- for the human being lives with two-thirds of itself in the soul's spiritual world and only one-third in the material world. Unless we seek knowledge of spiritual life, we will remain ignorant of our true being. We must ask, in a deeper way than the one in which most questions are asked these days, which part of our being is the area of the human soul that we encompass in the word, in quotes, thinking? Which is the part of the human soul that we encompass in the word, will, between the two lies our gemüt, our feeling life. We will arrive naturally at knowledge of our feeling life, our gemüt, when we give attention to our thinking life and the life of our conscious actions, our will life. Follow me briefly through a consideration of exactly what is meant by thinking. As human beings, we are aware that our thinking inwardly parallels outer life, which makes impressions upon us by one means or another. This thinking, we live in it. But at the same time, we should be aware that the majority of life is full of times when this thinking is divided by all sorts of dreams. Most people are not aware of the ways in which an unwilled element plays a role in their thought life. All of these unwilled parts of our thinking are essentially dreamlike. Try to be clear in yourself about how much you control your thoughts from the very center of your will life on a daily basis. Try to be clear about how much you strive to direct these thoughts inwardly, to form them out of yourself. Try to be clear about whether Most of the time, your soul allows the thoughts to enter it, allows them to break through to that deeper place. They have a life of their own, these thoughts. One blurs freely into the next, and people gladly give themselves over to the games that these unwilled thoughts play with one another. There is no great difference between these daytime thought games and the dreams that come to us while we are sleeping. These dreamlike elements intermingle with human thinking in other ways as well. People these days take part in the life of the external world. How do they participate in this life? 
they inform themselves about things that are happening in the world. They inform themselves in such a way that the events of life, brought about by some impulse or another, are carried over in large part into their own experience. They give themselves over to all sorts of popular agitation and excitement. You need only to investigate yourself whether this surrender to popular agitation stems from individual willing or whether it comes rather from being swept up in whatever impulses are present at a given moment. I could present many, many different things to you that come storming into thought life that take control of our thinking without any involvement of the human will. This was the reason I published my book titled The Philosophy of Freedom, to show that human freedom is only possible when this unwilled, dreamlike thinking is removed and replaced by impulses from our fully conscious and awakened will. Now, these kinds of true thoughts, what are they like? When is it true thinking? When it comes out of the fully conscious will. When you grasp a thought such that it is truly you that grasps it. In the moment that our thoughts grasp us, we are no longer free. Only when we are able to grasp a thought with our own power, with our own being, are we truly free. Since this is the case, a thought can be nothing other than an image. Were it something other than an image, if it possessed a reality of its own, it could not allow us to be free. Everything that has a reality of its own sucks us into the whirlwind of that reality. Only an image can allow us to be free. Think about it. All of the objects you see around you in a room have a real effect upon you. You are only completely free in relationship to the images that you see in a mirror. Those images can do nothing to you themselves. You cannot bump into those images. Were those images to have any sort of effect upon you, it would only be because you chose to undertake something in relation to them. If a fly lands on your nose, even though it is only a very small organism, you are not free you move reflexively. This is the case with all things in reality. You are only free in relation to those things that you perceive as images, things that have no actual reality of their own, things that are simply images. Why are our thoughts made up of nothing more than images? To answer this, we need only to recall something that you can read about in my title Outline of Esoteric Science, namely, that human beings were once connected with the previous incarnation of the planet Earth, an incarnation that we call the moon evolution. If you read through everything described there about moon evolution, you will say to yourself, quote, During moon evolution, humans were connected with entirely different forms of being and entirely different forces of nature than the ones we encounter now during Earth evolution. Close quote. Humanity has moved through this period of moon being. Its after-effects are still present on earth. Humanity evolved out of its existence on the moon into its existence on earth. And if you read what I have described there more exactly, 
you will say to yourself, quote, during moon evolution, humans did not yet think in the way that they now do on earth, close quote. Back then, people lived in a realm of unconscious imagination. And this unconscious imagination was not integrated into their will, just as dreams are not integrated into our will now. Thinking was first integrated into the will after a long period of evolution, one that we are still gradually moving through in this fifth post-Atlantean epoch. What we now experience as thoughts developed out of what we experienced as pictorial images in our souls during moon evolution. Let me read that again. What we now experience as thoughts developed out of what we experienced as pictorial images in our souls during moon evolution. If you consider this very carefully, you will also come to see that everything that creeps into our thinking, such as the dreamlike things I just described, is a carryover of what people experienced in their soul life during moon evolution. When we surrender to the rapid motion of our thoughts, allow our thoughts to give form to our will, allow dreamlike things to play games in our thinking, In these moments, the conditions of moon evolution are, in one way or another, at play in our thinking life. As you can see, the influence of our previous existence on the moon extends very, very far into our everyday thinking life. You can detect it everywhere, the way your thinking, your imaginations, are intermingled with the unwilled element of those things that simply occur to you and zip through your mind. This is a carryover from moon evolution. It is the case, therefore, that we have two different forces within our beings working directly against one another. The first impels us to control our thinking with our will, to become free in our thinking life. The second constantly tries to disrupt this free thinking with carryovers from moon evolution, a luciferic element. A luciferic element is part of our everyday thinking life. We cannot banish it completely. We would have to banish from ourselves everything that we were not yet able to arrive at through our free-willed thinking, and yet we must always strive for new knowledge. We must be conscious of this and clear that this is the case. It is nothing more than empty words to say that you want to escape Lucifer's influence altogether. This is nonsense, for the Luciferic element always plays a role in our everyday thinking. If you want to stand and meet the present demands of human evolution, then you must have the goodwill to know that both forces the true earth forces and the luciferic forces are constantly at play in your soul life. Only then will you achieve a real understanding of what truly lies within the human soul. I would like to say that in describing this, I have provided a rough sketch of one pole of the human soul. Let us now consider the other pole, the one that lies nearer to our will life. Of course, The will also plays a role in our thinking, but thus far we have only discussed thinking penetrated by will forces. Now we must consider willing penetrated by the forces of thinking. How does our will, 
which then transforms into actions, play a role in our everyday life. We can come to an understanding of this by taking a look at the connection between the actions we take every day and the whole cosmic being. Think about this for a moment. When you take a single step, when you move from this location forward to this location, steps forward, you actually alter, although in the most minuscule way, the gravitational conditions of the whole earth. When you step here, steps backward, you move to a different location than when you move here, steps forward. You influence the gravity on the earth differently when you step here, steps forward, than when you step here, steps backward. But if you properly consider that you influence the gravity of the earth just by moving across its surface, you will also come to understand a different sort of influence that you exercise upon it. Consider for a moment something that is part of the natural world. For example, when a branch grows out of a tree trunk, this branch has a particular relationship to the earth as a whole, just as it also has a certain relationship to that trunk from which it is growing. It has a particular gravitational relationship to all of the earth. The earth and the branch taken together constitute a unified whole. If you were to break that branch off the tree and lay it down somewhere nearby, you would alter the gravitational conditions of the entire earth, if only in a very small way. The tree would sway less in the wind, and the broken branch would rustle a little on its own in some other location. You would change the gravitational conditions on the earth differently if you were to lay the branch here as opposed to over there. This is something that you bring into the world through the very fact of your being. So far, we have only discussed the relationship between your human form and the surrounding world. But you have other influences on the world. For example, you can make something out of this tree branch. Let us say that you consciously and artfully form this branch into something that can then be put to some sort of use. To do this, you first think about what the form should be, and then you cut away everything that is not part of that form. Now you are exercising an entirely different kind of influence, one that does not involve breaking the branch off the trunk and putting it on the ground, but one that actually involves giving a different form to, to something nature created. Just think how much human beings do in this artistic or technical way. Think about how they form the things they take from nature and in so doing exercise influence over the earth. And I ask you that when people do these things, when they alter the natural world, when they form machines and pieces of art from the things they take from nature, do they do this with their thinking? Let us consider how much of it comes from thinking. When we think about something, we create a mental image of it. For the things existing on the earth, it makes no difference what occurs in this world of images, just as the images that appear in a mirror reflecting the objects in a room exert no influence on the objects themselves. But human beings give their mental images reality. This is the other side of the coin. When human beings having developed out of moon evolution, give reality to their thoughts, 
When we form something and place it somewhere in the world, something plays a role in all of this machinery, in all of the things we craft and form that is not at all connected with earthly existence. Just as luciferic forces bring dreamlike elements into our thinking and play the role in the dreamlike state of moon evolution. So what is it that plays a role in everything that we bring into the world? The things that we bring into the world through the actions of our liberated soul life are not products of old moon evolution, which then gave way to our present earthly state. These things that we create will only have real significance once earth evolution has given way to the next stage of evolution. Like a child in its mother's womb, or perhaps not yet in its mother's womb, but waiting in the spiritual world for its chance to incarnate, like a child whose existence will come some time in the future, everything that human beings create is still in an embryonic state, waiting for its moment in the future. And we see the true meaning of these things only when we see them as embryonic, when we see that their true significance lies some time in the future. If we create something in our lives today, if we do not take nature as it is but rather alter it somehow by giving reality to our thoughts, we are in that moment creating for the future. If instead we see what we are creating as belonging only to the present, if what we create takes up residence in our lives in such a way that we see only its momentary usefulness, then the future will come to reside unnaturally in our actions, just as the past resides unnaturally in our dreamlike thinking, and aramonic forces will take hold of our actions. In human life, only the child, who also creates and forms things in the world, though without the striving after usefulness, may in its unconscious state understand what it creates as existing not only for the present, but in preparation for the future. We must always be conscious that when we as human beings bring forth our machines and artistic creations, we are forming things for our next phase of existence, for Jupiter evolution. We must be conscious that our earthly existence must someday be shed and that the true meaning of our actions will come only in some future existence. This is the great error of modern times. People see the mechanical and artistic things they create only for their present usefulness and do not wish to become aware that we all have work to do for the future forms of our existence. In choosing to focus on the immediate usefulness of what we create, we allow Araman to creep into our will life. We must ask ourselves, was this focus on usefulness always present in human existence? It was not present as such during the times of ancient Greece, for example, and in earlier cultures. During those times there was still awareness, if it came from a kind of atavistic clarity, that a human being had an existence beyond an earthly form. It was in the 15th century that people began to strive solely after usefulness in what they created, and these days worldwide programs are founded entirely on this desire for usefulness. 
just as it is impossible to entirely remove a dreamlike element from our thinking life, it is also impossible to entirely remove this striving after usefulness. Therefore, let no one utter the empty phrase, quote, I want to escape from all Aramanic influence, close quote. That is nonsense. It is impossible. Araman plays a role in all of our actions, with the exception of what we do as children, when we have no goal, no desire for usefulness, when we do everything simply because we want to do it. In all of our other actions, we can only strive to achieve a certain kind of ideal. How can we do this? We must be clear that there are two forces at play in our present lives as human beings. What forces? One is the force that causes us to act out of a desire for usefulness, but the other is as follows. Whenever we undertake something in life, where we do not allow ourselves to be tugged and pulled about like a puppet, whenever we do something without being in this puppet-like state, then something else always accompanies our actions. We become more clever, we grow wiser, we are able to do whatever we just did better after we have done it. This is the other force within us. Most people, especially after they turn 18 and believe they already know everything they need to know, do not pay attention to the fact that it is possible to grow wiser and better at the things they do throughout the whole of their lives. The first force within us is our drive for usefulness. The second is ongoing self-development, which causes us to pay attention to all that we do, that we might then observe how we can improve our human existence by doing this or that in a certain way. The force that influences human existence in this way has a very different effect and significance than our simple sense of a thing's usefulness in a given moment. Let us examine this in light of a very, shall we say, distinguished example. Let us consider the paintings of Raphael. Raphael worked on his paintings during the span of a very brief lifetime. At some point, there will come a time in the future when nothing will be left of Raphael's paintings. There will perhaps be reproductions of them, but nothing directly connected to Raphael himself. There will someday come a time when no incarnated human being will ever be able to lay eyes on Raphael's paintings. But Raphael will still be there, and that which Raphael became through the process of working on his paintings will still be there. Through the process of working on these paintings, Raphael was carried forward into another incarnation that was suitable to the preparation he had done. He carried that work with him during the time between his death and his next birth, and then appeared in a new earth incarnation during which he did something else. He continued to carry that work with him throughout his life. What Raphael became through painting his pictures is what continues to live on and would continue to exist even if the earth were destroyed. It is possible to refine a desire for usefulness such that one can explain why it is useful that paintings exist. If you were to think about it, you would see that there is no great difference between an unrefined desire for usefulness 
and a more refined one that allows someone to talk about the usefulness of Raphael's paintings. But what Raphael's individuality and soul became through the process of painting is something altogether different. That will carry over from this existence on earth into Jupiter evolution. That is what will continue to develop in the future. This is a very, shall we say, distinguished example of what will happen with the human soul, something which we can distinguish from actions in the external world. We must hold this differentiation up before our souls and understand how wide-reaching it is. We must understand that someday the earth will disintegrate into the cosmos, that someday nothing will be left except human souls. When nothing remains except human souls, the results harvested from those souls, evolution will be the thing that distinguishes what our earthly existence was at the end from what it had been at the beginning. From this standpoint, we can identify what might be called the obligation that each of us has to develop ourselves during earth evolution. We can identify the obligation each of us has to make something of ourselves so that we can be a part of the cosmos. And with this comes this thought. The earth will end someday. The earth will disintegrate. Human souls will be all that is left. I would like to point out that the strength needed to bear this thought To grasp it in spite of how difficult it is, this strength is being altogether lost. And as it vanishes, earth evolution will cease to have any meaning unless people can find the strength to bear a spiritual understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. For at the heart of the mystery of Golgotha, if it is understood properly, lies the seed of thoughts like this one, thoughts that arise from a true spiritual perspective. Just think about that very popular saying which the evangelists attribute to Jesus Christ, quote, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall live forever. Close quote. What Christ gives to the human soul will remain, will continue to be there, even after the earth has ended and split apart in the cosmos. Now I ask you, and here I return to my report on these times, can the interpretations of the mystery of Golgotha that religious teachers and theologians have made over the years still offer us the needed perspective? No, that is altogether impossible. Even the theologians and religious teachers have become materialistic, and a materialistic understanding of the mystery of Golgotha does not hold sufficient meaning for all of our existence on earth. Anyone who is serious about Christianity these days, I have said this from other perspectives in the past, today you hear it again from a new point of view, must seek a spiritual understanding of the mystery of Golgotha. In other words, true spiritual knowledge, true knowledge of the spiritual world, is absolutely necessary for humanity at present. As I mentioned at the start of this lecture, for fifty years people were powerless to imbue their ideal realism with any true reality. This is the reason that so much misfortune has come to Europe. But now comes the question. Do those who are able to avoid further misfortunes 
living as they do in a time when people are actively speaking about spiritual science, wish to go on living as those who had not heard about spiritual science were forced to live for the last fifty years? If so, then catastrophes will befall this earth that will make the ones we have experienced seem insignificant. There is nothing else to do but to say this directly. When people demand a renewal of spiritual life, excuse me, when people demanded a renewal of spiritual life fifty years ago, they were not able to achieve it because its time had not yet come. Today the time has come. Today, if you do not wish to turn toward spiritual life, then you cannot truly be serious about the continuation of human evolution. This is the responsibility that I must speak of, that must be spoken of, particularly to those who are able to take it up, building on foundations that have already been laid. We must look toward the horizon in our consideration of the world. We cannot shy away from our existence. Imagine that a cabinet of yours has been broken into many pieces. You have the pieces in front of you. You are looking at them. Some sort of accident has broken this cabinet apart and now the pieces of it are in front of you. What do you do? You take the pieces, you get some nails and you fasten the pieces together to make it look like it once did. And it will. However, it will fall apart again if the pieces have become rotted or if the nails do not hold or if the pieces are weakened in other places. Europe has fallen apart as if it were an old cabinet. Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Romania, Serbia, Austria, Germany, the former Germany, the former Russia, Ukraine, these are the pieces, the remains of the cabinet. And the Western powers are trying to put these rotten pieces back together with nails that will not hold. People do not see that they are holding rotten pieces. They are gluing the old back together, thinking that in so doing, They are bringing new substance into the course of human evolution. This is what they think they are doing. But that can only be accomplished through an awareness and understanding of spiritual science. And the question is, should the world, after what Europe has gone through and what Asia and America will soon experience as well, simply glue and nail together the old rotten pieces of itself because it is the most comfortable thing to do? Or should we instead seek a complete renewal of the entire being of humanity through a connection with the spiritual world? We will speak more on this tomorrow, the end of Lecture 7.